building. It's the people, right? Now, what if I told you this morning that the Apostle Paul taught that the church was a building? You'd say, show me, right? I'd say, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, we, the leaders, are God's fellow workers. You, the church, are God's field, God's building. So the church is a building. So who's right? Pastor Larry or the Apostle Paul? Okay. Should be a bit of a no-brainer. Um, but mercifully, in this instance, I'd say we're, we're both right. Both these things are true. We've, we've been looking at um, the three great devotions that God's people are to have. Love for God, we looked at. Now we're in the midst of looking at what it means to love one another, to love the church. We've seen that the church is a bride in Scripture. The church is a body in Scripture. And today, Paul's going to say it's a field and it is a building. So if, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's where we'll be thinking ab about um, the church today, about loving one another today, who it is that we're loving. And um, I'd like to pray for our time in, in that portion of Scripture, if you'll bow with me. Father, we, we come in today and our burdens are great and heavy and we hope for encouragement from your word. And so I pray that uh, you, would, you would meet us, your people, in the proclamation of your good truth that's so good for us. I, I pray that it would be appropriately encouraging and confronting and all that the Spirit longs it to be in our lives today. Um, open our lives, our whole lives to what you're about to say, and we say up front, we'll do whatever you ask, and because we love you and we trust you, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, First, first Corinthians, um, it's written to a church in a place called Corinth. The church was a bit of a wreck. Um, it's not like your prototype church. It's not the church that everybody wants to go and plant. But it's a church just, I mean, it's a real church. It has, that's what, uh, reading 1 Corinthians especially is so good for us because the, our struggles are like their struggles. And it's such a helpful book. Um, one of the best ways to think about, to learn about what the church is supposed to be is simply reading 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul, though, is a little bit frustrated with this church at points. And he's having to issue corrections to their thinking and their beliefs. It's a church that he started. Um, and, and chapter 3, he's kind of griping them out because even though they have the spirit, they're living like people who don't. Okay? They're living just like people outside of the church who don't have the spirit of God. And so he says, I cannot even treat you as spiritual people because you're living 
like the world, like, an, like unbelievers, really. In particular, he says, you're marked by jealousy and quarreling. And their, their jealousy and quarrels were rooted in part in prideful divisions. And look with me at verse 4. That's where we'll pick up. Verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 3 where it says, Paul says, well, well one person says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So when you, th when you think about what Paul's um, kind of fussing them out about, these quarrels and the jealousy that they had, kind of the, the back story to those things is really that they are expressions of their pride. They're saying essentially, I'm more important than you are because I follow somebody who's more important than the teacher that you follow. It was, for them, significance by association, right? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, two of, their, two of their great leaders. It was really kind of a prideful discrimination that was going on in the church. And Paul addresses it head on when he says, we are, we are just God's fellow workers. You are God's field God's building. So in this analogy, the church is the field, okay? The church is the dirt, <laughs> okay? It's not a real exalting kind of an analogy that he's giving to a prideful group of people. You guys are the plowed field. You're the, you're the, you're the dirt in this analogy. Um, and Paul and Apollos are just fellow workers with God. Doesn't mean they're co-workers with God, but they are God's fellow workers. He owns them. They do what he tells them to do. Um, there was a book title a long time ago. I just thought it was a really good title for a book. Um, it says, Your God is Too Small. That was the book title. And you could flip it around the other way in Corinth and you could say, your man is too big. Your leaders are too exalted. Paul says he and Apollos are just workers, God's own, just the people who work in God's field. Um, now, those of us who are leading the church and those who hope to, this needs to be our mantra. We're only servants. We're only servants. Um, Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 17. He said, you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, you should say, 
We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay. We are only, only servants. And we need to almost chant that over and over because part of us desperately wants to be so much more. We want to be important. But Paul is saying it's really all about God. He owns it all. He owns the field. Those are his workers. It is God who is orchestrating everything that's going on in the church. Okay. It's God who makes it grow. Pitting a Paul against Apollos is like just pitting one tool against another. It's like exalting the watering can over the rake. And this can happen when the adjective that we put before Christian to describe the kind of Christian that we are, when the adjective that modifies Christian matters more than Christian, when the adjective divides more than the cross unifies, when the adjective makes you look down on someone or feel superior to them because you're a Baptist Christian or you're a Reformed Christian or you're an Evangelical Christian, all those things often to us mean we're just a little bit better brand of Christian than those other folks. And often we are worshiping the rake over the one who owns it the one who owns the whole farm. Prideful divisions are protected against when we put our leaders in their proper place and God in his. Okay. Mere servants, mere workers, nothing in comparison to God who owns it all. He's the one who causes the growth. So when we talk about being God's church, the church is the sole work of God not the work of any man, Paul's saying. It belongs to him. We belong to him. We're just the dirt. Our leaders are just the tools. The rake and the shovel are the ones who wield them that God uses to grow his church. And we exalt him alone far above us, far above our leaders. And the Corinthians were confused about whose field it really was. They thought it belonged to their leaders. It's God's field. It's his church. But he doesn't just say we're God's field. He also says we're God's building. And that's really what we want to think about most this morning together. Um, what does it mean when he says we're God's building? Look at verse 9 in chapter 3. It says, we are God's fellow workers, this Apollos and Paul, the leaders who have been influential in the history of the Corinthian church. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So he planted the church. He started the church in Corinth. And someone else is building upon it. Paul has moved on. And now they have other leaders. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is bringing a word of warning to the leaders at Corinth. He's warned the church not to exalt their leaders in the place of Christ. Now he's warning the leaders. He's bringing a word of warning to them who have followed after his planning of the church um, and says there's only one foundation for the church, the good news of Christ crucified, dead, buried, and raised to life on the third day. That's the foundation. Any other foundation, Paul's saying, you don't have the church. You don't believe that, you do not have the church. Um, For instance, consider this teaching by um, Christian Science. Here's a quote. One of their writings says, uh, Jesus, his disciples believed Jesus to be dead when he was hidden in the sepulcher where he was alive. One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. The atonement requires constant self-immolation on the sinner's part. That God's wrath should be vented upon his beloved son is divinely unnatural. Such a theory is man-made. The apostle Paul would simply say, wrong foundation, not the church. It is not built on Christ crucified, dead, buried, raised again, not the church. This is not, they can call it Christian, it's not. They can call it science, I don't think it's that either, probably. Um, See, in the church, it's all based on, depends upon, built upon, springs up from, hinges on, flows from, focuses on, is consistent with, exalts. I think you get the idea, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our foundation. All builds on that. This is why Paul, back in chapter 2 of this letter, put it this way. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified doesn't mean that he didn't believe in the resurrection. There's a whole chapter, chapter 15, same letter about the resurrection. The resurrection's part of the gospel that he's assuming in that. But his concern in this letter is not so much with the wrong foundation as it is people who are building badly on that foundation. This is why he's urging such caution. When he says in in verse 10, he says, let each one take care, be careful how he builds upon the foundation. And he focuses now on how the church's leaders are building on that foundation. In verse 12, he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, Jesus Christ crucified, right, and risen. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, in in these verses, he lists all these different ways you can build on the foundation, right? In this 
um, analogy. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. And a lot of people have tried to figure out, well, why does he use those materials? What do they mean? Are they, is it cheap versus costly? Is it a descending order of value? And as you read it in, in, in the further context of what Paul's saying, the idea seems to be one group is perishable while the other is imperishable. Okay? And he says there's coming a day when the differences will be revealed. And in the Old Testament, that day that Paul has in mind was called the day of the Lord. Um, uh, there's a prophet, little tiny prophet in the Minor Prophets. His name is Obadiah. He only got one chapter in the Bible. But he wrote this about the day of the Lord. He said, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. It's a day of judgment that's coming. Okay. And Paul says on that day, you're either going to get reward or you're going to get loss based on the materials that you lose. Again, he's, he's really focusing primarily on leaders who are leading and building the church. Not exclusively, but primarily he's got us in mind. And he says that you'll get reward or loss on that day based on the materials that you build with, whether they're perishable or imperishable on that day. Now, what kind of reward comes to those who build the church with imperishable materials? And Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us the exact nature of that reward. It's not as clear as we might wish. But what is clear throughout Scripture in Paul's writing is who does the rewarding. Okay? That it's a reward that comes by God himself. And Paul seems to have in mind centrally the, the favor of God on your life versus the judgment of God on your, on your life. And he, he writes about it in the next chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. He says, therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Okay. And then, he says... Each one will receive his commendation from God, his praise from God. Um, okay. So one of the things he has in mind is that, that um, old expression from the Bible where it says, well done, good and faithful servant, or not. Okay. The praise, the commendation of God. And if not reward on that day, the idea is that of shameful loss, of standing before God and seeing your life's work go up in smoke of a life wasted. Okay. So those are the two things he's warning leaders about. He says there's a day it's going to test your work, the way you've led and shepherded and cared for the church. And the outcome is determined by these verses that we read. What you build with, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it, and it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Okay. 
In Paul's analogy of the church as a building, it's the materials you use. You want to build with good stuff, okay? If you're, if you're a leader in the church, you, you want to do your best work. Maybe that's the big, broad principle. You want to use good quality materials that you're building the church with, your best stuff. But most specifically, again, he's talking about stuff that's imperishable. What does Paul have in mind by imperishable materials? Gold, silver, and precious stones. Um, now, lots of things could fall into this category. Um, things in Corinth, he talks about man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about false teaching. He talks about apathy. Um, but one thread that runs through this section of Paul's letter is that of pride and humility. We've already seen it, right? Their jealousy was caused by their pride, uh, their prideful divisions. Um, Paul is urging here, amongst the leaders especially, a Christ-exalting, church-unifying humility. What would that look like? Well, when, when, a, when a leader leads out of humility, Christ is happily exalted. Okay? The leader is self restricting. He is not after personal gain or reputation. He's like John the Baptist who says, Christ must increase, I must decrease. And as a result, he shares leadership and the leadership is unified because they're focused on Christ, not on the leader. He deploys his gifts for the church, not for his reputation. Obedience to Christ, worship of Christ matters supremely, not allegiance to the leader. Acceptable worship involves offering our best, and humility is what enables that. Malachi talked about it at the end of the Old Testament. He said, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? See, imperishable materials are in part the humble offering of our best to Christ and giving him all the glory, exalting him as worthy, the sole head of the church. We're just fellow workers out in the field. Okay? Now, what does he mean then by perishable materials? Wood, hay, and straw. What would that look like in the life of a leader? And here he has in mind, in part, Paul does, man-exalting, often me-exalting, divisive pride. This is what lay behind them saying, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. What does that look like in the life of a leader? Um, in this situation, I am happily exalted. Okay. I am glad for the spotlight. The church is built on the leader's personality, gifts, charisma, vision, leadership, reputation. Leadership is often not shared. It's competitive, even quarrelsome. Turf wars are common. Strategies, schemes, tools, approaches, philosophies are what matters most especially if they belong to the leader. We do not offer God our best because we have already offered it to the leader. Pride will not let us offer our best to anyone but me. Right? 
Malachi talks about this. He keeps going on about this. He says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. For you give your best to me and not to God. Ed Stetzer came up with these five marks of an arrogant pastor. One, an elitist mentality. Your church is the only one that you know that's doing things the right way. Two, you're theologically superior. You won't read authors from outside of your own theological stream. Three, you have an exclusionary attitude. You refuse to partner with other local churches on community initiatives. Four, you're narcissistic. You're more worried about what people think of your church than what they think of your family. And I'd probably tweak that and say you're more worried about what people think of you than worrying about how your family's doing. Five, you're overly competitive. You consider the church down the street your competition. So those of you who are serving our church in leadership, I don't want you to miss Paul's warning to us. He says it's possible, it's, it's too possible. It might even be common for someone to give their life to building a church and have it all go up in smoke one day. And it's not just, this is not just for leaders. Okay? It's possible, it's too possible for you to come faithfully to this gathering, to go to life change class, to do the whole study serve routine, to go to small group, even lead a small group. You can be a pastor or a missionary, and it can all be a waste. It can end up with loss and absolutely no reward. God is not pleased. So, church, if you don't know how to pray for our leaders, pray that we would not be proud. Pray that we will not waste our lives due to self-exalting, church-dividing pride. And here's a really good example <clears throat> for how you can pray for our leaders. And uh, it's... It comes from a man named Ligon Duncan, and it's, uh, it's how to pray for your pastor. It's very, very apropos. Um, he says, pray that your pastor would be kept from pride, and especially spiritual pride, that the Lord himself would be gracious to slay pride in him, and that your pastor would endeavor to always be putting pride to death by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That is a great prayer to pray for me. Okay. I, I, I need this kind of prayer offered for me. Because um, uh, you, you put me out in the middle here, and you put me on a box, right? And I got a nightlight lighting me up. And all of a sudden, um, I can start thinking I'm something pretty special. And when somebody doesn't agree with me, I can start thinking... Um, they're just fools. Why don't they listen to me? So I need this. If you don't know how to pray for your pastor, pray, pray against pride. Because it stalks me every day. Okay. Pray for our leaders that we would build the church with unifying Christ-exalting humility. Here's another good, this is a good verse to pray for us. 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If you, know, if you want to pray a verse for our elders, you can pray 1 Peter 3.8 for our elders. Pray for our leaders that in humility we will offer our best, only our best, and only to God. Now, so far, um, I've been applying this section mostly to our leaders, and Paul has that in his crosshairs, but um, I want to broaden it a little bit, and I want you to think about whether it could apply to you. I think it should. Um, Craig Blomberg wrote a commentary on this section of Scripture, and he points out that every faithful Christian exercises leadership responsibility, servant leadership responsibility in the church in some way or another. And then ultimately, he says, all contribute in one way or another to the growth or the stagnation of the church. He says it seems far too restrictive to limit the judgment of these verses to any select group of Christians. So it's for us. It's for all of us. Because it's possible, it's all too possible, maybe even common, for people who sit where you sit and serve where you serve to see it all go up and smoke one day on that day. Because you're going to stand there too. It's not just leaders who stand before God and give an account. You'll be subject to the very same fiery test. What will it, what will it yield for you on that day? Will it will it yield reward or will it yield loss? Will your service at North Wake go up in smoke? Will it all have been a waste? Will your career, your life's work perish in the fire of that day? Will that not have been your best offered to God in worship? A whole lot of days are going to go up in smoke on that day, I'm afraid. And it can seem odd to us that all of these Severe judgments would be made about how you do church, right? Um, because after all, um, it's just an hour on Sunday, right? And this church looks pretty nice. And I kicked in a little of that JOF building fund to help it be okay. So what's all the fuss about? And Paul, Paul has already tipped his hand at one level. This is God's church. We're talking about the people who are the building, not this building, right? But he goes on and, and, and he tips his hand even more in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So it's not just any building that we're building. We're building a temple. Now, in Corinth, they would have known right away what this meant. Corinth is a city that was renowned for its many idols and many temples. They had temples to Aphrodite and Apollos and Poseidon and all the Greek gods. Um, lots of temples. And so they would have known right away what a temple was. But where was the temple in Corinth for Christians, God? 
you walked the streets, there were no temples to the Christian God. There was only one temple for the one true God, and they were it, Paul is saying. You are God's temple. You are together, collectively. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's going to tell us our bodies are a temple. And that ought to shape the way we live life and how we do things as individuals. But here he's talking about us collectively as the church. When he says you are God's temple, it means we are God's temple. We don't, we don't think about temples much these days, but we have them in our culture, right? Um, car dealerships could be considered a temple, a place where a lot of people uh, make their offerings on a monthly basis and, uh, and do a lot of uh, worshiping. Um, the mall could be a temple in our day and age. I'll go through this next one really fast so it's not too convicting. There we go. All right. Um, uh, you know, in, in just outside of Wake Forest in North Raleigh, there's a, uh, there's a Buddhist temple. And if you went down to Cary, now I haven't seen this, but this is in Cary. This is a Hindu temple. Um, where is the temple for God's people? Some people would say, right here. Okay. That's not the temple. Okay. The church is a building, and it's a temple. But it's not this building. It's you. It's me. It's us together. We are God's temple. His spirit indwells us. This is why it's such a big deal. The Spirit indwells us. When he, when he talks here, he's talking in the plural. He's talking about us collectively. This is where if they would use a southern vernacular, it would be so much more helpful. Y'all, y'all are God's temple is exactly what Paul's saying here. Not the physical building. It's us. The Spirit does not dwell in this place. Dwells in this people. Okay. And that's why it's just such a huge deal. It's not just any temple. It's God's temple. The temple where the spirit of God dwells. And um, the language that's used here, scholars tell us, the language that's used here for temple is not just like a generic word for the temple. Uh, there are a couple different words that are used. And, and one of them means that. means just the temple. Um, the whole shebang. But the word, the language that's used here is the language of the, the inter, inner courts. The, uh, in the Old Testament, some of, some of them say it was a reference to a place called the Holy of Holies where God was. We're that part of the temple. Um, it was the place where the deity dwelt, where he was encountered and worshipped by the priests, where where he would speak to his people and receive their sacrifices, the um, place where God dwells. That's what he's saying we are. So what that means in part is, hey, if you want to encounter the Christian God, if you have a friend who wants to know what the Christian God is like, then we should be able to say, come 
and watch us gather and watch how we worship. Watch the way we love one another, forgive one another, care for one another in times of need, share with each other in times of plenty. Watch. Watch how we rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer with those who suffer. If you want to see the temple for the Christian God in our city, come and meet with us. See our families. See our marriages. See how we love one another. See how we worship God. Because when we gather together, we are God's temple where the Spirit dwells and is at work among us. Now, those are some pretty, pretty freighted and convicting words. This is no ordinary gathering. And because of that reality, because we together are God's temple where his spirit dwells. Um, Paul goes on and he says this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You could say, if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. The church is holy. It's set apart for God. And you are that temple. He says again, you are that temple. Y'all are that temple. It's sacred. It's holy. It's set apart for the one true almighty God. Don't mess with the church, okay? Don't be messing with the church. God will destroy people who mess with his church. Um, D.A. Carson says the ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it. Admittedly, more slowly than frank heresy, but just as effectively in the long haul. Building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death, but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. And to do so is dangerous. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. He says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What does it mean that God will destroy us if we we destroy the church. Again, the precise way is, is not clear. Um, but does it have to be clear? I mean, if a husband says to you, don't mess with my bride or I'm going to take you out. Do you go, um, what do you mean by take you out? Can you, could you explain that? I'm not sure I know exactly. Are you going to run over me with your car? Or are you going to? Shoot me, what? 
you don't really need to know, you know? Um, when he says don't mess with, you don't have to know. You don't have to know the precise meaning of take you out. You don't have to know that. The sense is clear enough. If the groom happens to be a mixed martial arts expert or an active duty special forces guy, um, I know what I need to know, right? I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go anywhere near there. And so the almighty God, creator and sustainer of all that is, has spoken to you and to me, and he says, don't mess with my bride or I will take you out. I wonder if we should be more careful about what we post about the church. Don't destroy the church. Don't destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit in Wake Forest. Love the church. Serve the church. Build the church. Protect the church. Strengthen the church. Be the church. Don't miss Paul's strongest of warnings here. Do not destroy the church. It's the very temple of the Spirit of God. So, it turns out the church is a building. It's not just any building. It's a temple. And it's not just any temple. It's God's temple where His Spirit dwells. And Paul has a special concern for leaders, how they build the church. And so what I'd like to do as we wrap up our time, if you're a leader in our church, you're an elder or a deacon or you're a ministry leader or a small group leader, I'd like to ask you to stand so that we can pray for you. Could you do that? If you serve our church in leadership in one of those ways or some other way, could you stand? All right. Now, church... I'm going to lead us in prayer for these people. And this is not a time to check your phones. This is a time to pray, okay? So would you bow with me in prayer for our leaders, please? You know, Father, as I, as I look around the room and see these men and women standing, we are so blessed as a church. I trust these leaders. I love the way they serve the church, but they are, we are human leaders, and our pride, it nips at our heels every day where we want to be right, we want to be important, and we want to be in the spotlight, and somehow it can become about me and not about your bride, your body, your temple. And so I pray for our leaders, we, your church, we pray for our leaders that you would protect them and you would protect us by protecting them from this insanity of pride and all the other sins that have been mentioned that could pull the church down, make her less than what she's supposed to be. Lord, protect these. May they be free from from the snare of sin. May they be free from just weariness 
and apathy. May their love for you grow deep and strong every day. Lord, we thank you for these leaders. Please protect them for the sake of your church. Help them build with imperishable materials that one day their reward will be great. We commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Now again, this is not just about our leaders, even though it's primarily that's who Paul's shooting at. It, it's about us all. And so I need to ask you, is your pride, we've been talking a lot about pride, is your pride destroying the church? Is it tearing apart the fabric of relationships in our church somehow? Is there someone that you're refusing to forgive? Is there someone you are unwilling to be reconciled with? That's tearing our church apart. And I'll, I want to warn you, God says, destroy the church, and I'm against you. Okay? I'll destroy you. Is your pride causing you to think that our church or our brand of church is better? That your pastor is better? Your professor is better? And so you're better than everybody else because you follow them? Be warned. If your pride divides the church... God is against you, and he will destroy you. See, the temple is the place where God meets and speaks with his people. And some of you this morning, those of you who are perhaps paying attention, God is speaking to you. And he's pointing out things in your life that he's saying, this needs to be changed you need to turn away from this. You need to turn towards this. And uh, you don't want to ignore that. Because, again, this, this gathering is right at the center of, of the temple of the Spirit of God. It's where he speaks best to his people. And we gather here. And if he is speaking to you, you want to respond to that. And so we'll have a time um, during this closing song at the close front down here. If you want to come down just to pray as a first step of obedience to God, um, that's a good and beautiful thing. And always we have leaders that are available. Some of them are going to be in the first row here. We'll have some of our elders here. And if there's any of our women's ministry leaders here, they'll come down. And we're here to pray with you if you want us to. But if God's saying something to you, uh, be happy to respond and reply to it. And, and coming for prayer alone or with a friend or with one of our leaders is a, a good and beautiful way to, to do that. So if you'll stand, we're going to worship our God and our King. And if God is prompting you to respond, let me encourage you to do that happily and obediently during this time.